If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Now, our primary text this morning is found in Matthew chapter 4, and we will get there in just a moment. But I want to read the corollary passage of Scripture, which is found in Ephesians chapter 6. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. And we'll be looking at verses um, verses 10 on. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 on. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesian church. Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm asking this morning that you would help me to share this message. Where we are at in our lives. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to begin with a story that I heard uh, recently. I heard about this little girl that was sitting on the lap, sitting on the lap of her grandfather. And she was touching his face and she was feeling all the wrinkles on her grandfather's face. And she con contemplated the difference between the wrinkles on her grandfather's face and her smooth face. And so she asked her grandpa, she said, Grandpa, did God make you? And he laughed and he said, yeah, God made me a long time ago. And then she asked the question. She said, well, did God make me? And he answered, yes, he made you a little bit ago. She thought about it for a moment and then she said, Grandpa, God is getting better at this, isn't he? <laughs> he is. He's getting better at it. God created you and he created me and he created all of us in our mother's womb. That's what the Bible says. And he has an everlasting love for you and he has an everlasting love for those of us who are his people. The Bible says that God loves us and he created us in our mother's womb. And because... He loves us. And because we are the pinnacle, you might want to say, of his creation, the Bible says that God has given us a free will. 
and he's given us a free choice. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he showed his love for them. And he said to them, this is the tree you can eat of, and this is the tree you will not eat of. If you do, you'll be doing something that you should not do. And he gave them free will and a free choice. We are not Ottomans and we are not puppets. The greatest gift that God gives us, one of the greatest gifts, is a free will to choose and to make a choice. According to the Bible, God does not tempt anyone. God is not the uh, tempter. He does not tempt anyone. And we have an enemy of our soul. And there is a tempter called the devil, called Satan. I call him Old Snaggletooth. And the Bible says that we are involved. We are involved in um, spiritual warfare. And so we have an enemy, a very, very real enemy, that tempts us. And because we have a free will, God has not removed that temptation. He has not removed that temptation. And he has not removed that free choice that we all have. And so when we're tempted, either by ourselves, by the world that we live in, or by Satan, we have a free will and we have a free choice. And we can say no to that temptation, or we can say yes to that temptation. And if we say yes to that temptation, it has all kinds of dire consequences and, uh, and results of that choice. If we say no to that temptation, God gives us victory. And he blesses that obedience for not resisting, for resisting that temptation. Now, this is what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. This is all background, our preface for my message this morning. This is what we read. No temptation has seized you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Uh, and he'll provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. A temptation in and of itself is not a sin. A temptation in and of itself is not a sin. If a temptation was a sin, then Jesus would have been a sinner because Jesus Christ, as we will see, was tempted. And the Bible says he was tempted in every single way that we are tempted. A temptation is not a sin. A temptation becomes a sin when this thought is planted in our mind, by ourselves, by the world we live in, by old snaggletooth, and when we do not discard that thought, but we contemplate on it, we meditate on it, and then we act on it. And then that's when it becomes a sin. Um, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian person for a number of years. I've committed myself to Jesus Christ. But for some reason, I'm going through a very, very difficult time. And because I have alcoholism in my past, and because this used to be the way that I dealt with the alcoholism was to drink, all of a sudden the thought comes into my mind, you need to take a drink and you need to get drunk. Now I have a choice at that particular time. I can say no. That's not right. That's not me. That's not the Christian way. I don't want anything to do with it. 
or I can contemplate it on it, I can think about it, and I can choose to go down that road and actually start drinking to excess and become uh, a drunken, uh, inebriated, drunken. Um, and so I have a choice. And so all of temptation basically starts in the mind with a thought, either from ourselves, from the world, and from Satan. And a temptation in of itself is not a sin. And what we need to do, as according to the Bible, is to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and to get rid of that thought and to think about something else and not to entertain a particular thought. Now, let's go back to Matthew chapter 4. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4? And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. In Matthew chapter 4, and... Um, and let's go ahead and get right into today's story. In today's story, we see three primary ways in which Satan uh, tempts people in general and which we're tempted by ourselves and by the world. This is found in 1 John. It's found in 1 John and uh, we see that particular passage. It's right there in your message notes. And it is called the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And in just a moment, we'll be defining those terms and see what those terms mean. But let me give you the background. Jesus is about 30 years of age, and he has said goodbye to his family, and he has said goodbye to his home permanently. Permanently. And the Spirit of the Living God leads him to the Jordan River area, and Jesus is baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And as Jesus is baptized, God speaks audibly, and he says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And after Jesus' baptism, we read that the Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness. And for 40 days and for 40 nights, Jesus is fasting. And Jesus is praying. And old Snaggletooth, Satan, the devil, comes along and tempts him, jumps on him and with three major temptations. Let me just digress some more. When we talk about Satan and when we talk about the devil, there are always two extremes. The first extreme is what I call the devil behind every bush mentality. I have a headache. It must be from the devil. I've got a toothache. It must be from the devil. I, I've got a hang toenail. It must be from the devil. Um, and there is that extreme where we blame the devil for anything and everything. And the dev devil gets a lot more credit, unfortunately, in that kind of theology, then he should get that kind of credit for. A number of years ago, I remember reading about a couple. And this couple, uh, this man and this woman, picked up their kids of all various ages and picked up their shirt-tail relatives. We're talking about a large station wagon and had it crammed full of relatives, and they were traveling from one place to another, and a highway patrolman pulled them over because... Every single person in that vehicle had no stitch of clothes on. And they were driving erratically. 
and very agitated, the CHP officer went up to the man, and they rolled down the window, and they asked him, what's happening, sir? And he said, the devil has been on us so much that we stripped off all of our clothes, and the devil is after us. Now, that's the devil behind every bush mentality. The other extreme is to completely ignore him and to say he's a figment of our imagination and to say that he does not exist and that he does not uh, have a cunning, uh, scheming type of mind and that he's uh, not a fallen angel with his uh, angelic cohorts and that they aren't well organized and that they are not strategically trying to be um, to deceive people and uh, that he is not uh, after uh, Christ's followers. That's another extreme because the Bible says that we do have an adversary and that he does use cunning and he does use schemes and he's organized, he's in charge of a well vast army of fallen angels. In fact, Jesus himself said that Satan and the devil is the father of lies and that he has come to kill, and he's come to maim, and he's come to destroy. So in our text, chapter 4, verse 1, the Holy Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness. He's been fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and he is in a very weakened condition. And guess who shows up? The tempter himself, old Snaggletooth, the devil, and he tempts Jesus in three primary ways that we're all tempted in. There may be little variations. The whole sequence or timing may be a little different. But he tempts us all in three general ways. And according to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, they basically are the lusts of the flesh. You say, Pastor Ron, define the lusts of the flesh for me. Well, we have uh, fleshly appetites for food, for sexual intimacy, for security, etc., and these are good things. These are good things. But the way that Satan and the way the world and the way that we work it in ourselves, these things can become bad things. They can become, become, we can become obsessive with these things. We can cross the boundaries that God sets in his word and we can become disobedient and we can be led down the pathway of temptation and sin. Number two, there is also... There's also the lust of the eyes. You say, what is that? Well, we're talking about surrounding ourselves with beautiful things. We're talking about owning nice things. We're talking about possessions. We're talking about fortune. Is there anything wrong with having nice things? Is there anything with owning uh, nice things? Is there anything wrong with having money in the bank and savings? No, just as long as those things do not own you. And just as long as we don't have to compromise to get them or to keep them. Okay? So we have the lust of the flesh. We have the lust of the eyes. And number three, we have the pride of life. I spent a whole message on pride when I went through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we were reminded of a particular dictator who lost all the sons. They were all murdered at once. He lost his wealth. He lost his palaces. He lost his fancy cars. He lost his yachts. He lost millions and millions of dollars. He lost his power. He lost his prestige. Uh, before he was apprehended, he spent two or three weeks in some sort of isolated bunker. And the last year of his life, he spent it in prison. 
and he died. Saddam Hussein died. He was hung because of his pride. This temptation, this condition, has brought down more kingdoms, toppled more empires, destroyed more marriages, ruined more friendships, brought down more businesses and churches almost than any other sin. So you have the lust of the flesh, you have the lust of the eyes, and you have the pride of life. And we see three, all three of these temptations that Satan brought against the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, first of all, notice, first of all, is the private or personal behind-the-scenes test. The personal or private behind-the-scenes test. This is the lust of the flesh. And look at what happened in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And notice, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He's in the wilderness. He's starving. He's experienced the desert heat. He doesn't have one morsel of food. And guess what the first temptation is? You turn these stones into bread. Is there anything wrong with eating bread? Is there anything wrong with having food? No. These are good things. Uh, these are normal things. But the way that Satan was tempting Jesus Christ, Jesus said, in my paraphrase, I will not use my power to impress you, and I will not do this particular thing for a bite of bread. He had a clear strategy, did he not? He got Jesus Christ when he was discouraged or when he was uh, fasting and when he was weak in a particular situation. Did you know that our physical and emotional well-being sometimes makes us more vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. I listened to a preacher last night, and he said, I borrowed this from another preacher, so I'm borrowing this from this preacher who borrowed it from another preacher, and who knows where it came from. But keep in mind, this acronym, H. A-L-T, HALT, HALT. H stands for harassment, harassment, being tired, discombobulated. A stands for angry, angry. You're a lot more vulnerable to attacks of old snaggletooth when you're harassed and when you're angry. And L stands for low blood sugar. <laughs> when, you, when you need to eat something, Maybe you need to carry around with you some peanuts and pop them in your mouth. Because when you're on low blood sugar, you're more vulnerable. And, and then T stands for tired. And maybe perhaps the most spiritual thing that you can do is take a nap and then wake up and be refreshed. So like a black-hearted Darth Vader called Snaggletooth, he cleverly designs his plots to capitalize on our weaknesses. He relentlessly searches for that weak link and ambushes us when we least expect it. What would have been wrong with Jesus turning the stones into bread? God wouldn't want his son to starve after all, would he? 
Satan wanted to test Jesus Christ to see whether he would use his power for selfish purposes or yield to the will of God the Father. And how did Jesus respond? Look at verse 4 with me. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Did you know that Jesus responds to Satan by using a passage of scripture in the Old Testament found in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. It is written. It is written. Isn't that amazing? Because three times he was tempted by Satan, and three times Jesus said, it is written. And he goes back and he quotes Deuteronomy 8, 3. You say, what significance is that? This is where the children of Israel had gone through trials and temptations for 40 years. And for 40 years, they had to learn the hard way to meet all of their needs by trusting in God and his provision at his time and in his manner. I want you to listen to this. A temptation, a temptation leads to sin. It always begins with a thought and it is normally a good thing. It is normally a good thing. There's nothing wrong with having food. There's nothing wrong with sexual intimacy. It always begins with a thought. And we're tempted to go beyond scriptural boundaries in fulfilling these things in our way and in our time and by our means. So, sexual intimacy. The Bible says it's to be between a man and a woman in a monogamous relationship. But I'm a single person. And did God really say that? And we're bombarded with that thought. And I know that it wouldn't hurt anybody. It wouldn't hurt anybody else. And my partner wants to do it. And I want to do it. And what prevents me from doing this? The thought enters your mind. And so you say, this is what the Bible says. And then you argue and you rationalize. And some people say, forget what the Bible says, because I don't believe that the Bible says that sexual intimacy is limited between a man and a woman. And they go down that pathway of sexual sin. The thought enters, you contemplate it, you dwell on it, and then all of a sudden you do it. That's when sin enters. And so God says, again, that sexual intimacy, for example, is between a man and a woman in a monogamous relationship. How many of you remember Ted Haggard? Ted Haggard. Ted Haggard uh, was a megachurch pastor outside of, uh, I believe it was in Colorado Springs, outside of Denver, between Denver and Colorado, somewhere in there. And for a number of years, he was the president of the Evangelical uh, Alliance of Evangelical Christians in Washington, D.C. Pastor of a church of thousands and thousands. Ted Haggard later admitted uh, to sexual sin with a male uh, masseuse. And this is what he said in my paraphrase. My moral failure didn't happen overnight. It seldom does. It didn't happen overnight. It happened over a period of time 
a compromise here, a compromise there, a thought, a believing of the thought, a thought that I pursued, a chink in my armor, a sabotage, an all-out attack when I least expected it, brought me to my knees, dragging Christ's name through the mud, and I'm reaping the consequence of that choice. And you see, when temptation comes along, you have to magnify the consequence. Because there are always consequences. And these consequences have a devastating effect effect on you and your life and your Christian witness. So the tempter comes to Jesus and says, you need to turn these stones into bread. And Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from God the Father. He passed this personal test, this lust of the flesh. Jesus, number two, also experienced a public limelight test. And we're talking really about the pride of life here. And I want you to look at, uh, look at chapter 4, and I want you to look at verses 5 and 6 with me. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And notice how Snaggletooth likes to twist scripture. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your feet against a stone. Now, he took Jesus up to the highest pinnacle of the temple. We're talking about 45 stories high. And he tells Jesus, jump off. Have this evil Knievel type of jump. You should do this, Jesus. If you do it, there are hundreds and thousands of people down in the temple court area. And when you survive, because you will survive because the angels will protect you, this is what he said, Sagalotooth, to Jesus. The whole world will know that you are the Messiah. The whole world will know that you are the chosen one. But Jesus, he wasn't into pleasing people with death-defying feats of messianic power. He decided he wanted to do what God wanted him to do. And so he answered Snaggletooth this way. Look at verse 7. Jesus answered him. Notice, it is also written. There it is again. It is also written. He's using scripture. Do not put the Lord God to the test. Satan, probably sneering in disgust, um, in, in disgust. What would have been wrong with a little bit showing off? What would have been wrong with a little bit of self-centeredness? After all, Snaggletooth got thrown out of heaven because of his pride and because he thought he was equal with God. And so he would have done it. He would have been filled full of ego. He would have been filled full of pride. He would have jumped off of it. And they would have recognized at that point that Jesus was the Messiah. But Jesus did not do that. I want you to notice the third temptation. And this is possessions. We're talking about fame. We're talking about fortune. We're talking about the lust of the eyes. No doubt, uh, being 
angry and upset, all snaggletooth, being rebuffed twice. Uh, so this time, he pulls out all of the stops for this third temptation. Look at verses 8 through 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and you will uh, worship me. And so Satan leads Jesus to, the, to this highest peak, this highest mountain, and he said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Think about it. I'll give you the whole Roman Empire that stretched from this place to this place. I'll give you all of India. I'll give you all of China. I'll give you all of the Mesopotamia area. I'll give you all the gems. I'll give you all the jewels. I'll give you all the diamonds. I'll give you all the precious metals. I'll give you silver. I'll give you gold. You have world fame acclaim. And people will bow down to you. And people will give you all these accolades. All you have to do in order to have all the kingdoms of the world is to bow down to me, Satan said, houses and wine and women and delicacies and gourmet food and all of it was at Christ's taking. In the third movie of the Indiana Jones series, The Last Crusade, the ground opens up, and according to this story plot, the very chalice, the very cup of Christ, worth innumerable amount of money, falls down into this crevice. This young lady, who has a mixture of good and evil, dives down into that crevice, and she is holding on to the cup of Christ worth all of his untold riches, supposedly. And Indiana Jones grabs her at the last minute and is barely hanging on to her free hand. And he says to her, Let go! Let go! Let go! I cannot hold your weight with just one hand. I'm losing my grip. Let go of the cup and grab a hold of my hand with two hands and I'll lift you up and I'll pull you out. She could not and she would not because riches and possessions was her idol and she perished and she died. but not Christ. In the face of all the wealth of the world, this is what Jesus said in verses 10 through 11. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And finally, after all that, in verse 11, the devil left him and the angels came to attend him. Later, Jesus would say, what is it, profit a man, to gain the whole world, but to lose his soul? You see, any time, at any place, the thought comes to our mind, the thought from ourselves, from the world, from Satan, comes to our mind and says, you need this, you want this, you desire this. All you have to do is cut a little corners. All you have to do is cheat a little bit. All you have to do is do these things that you know is wrong. After all, the whole world is compromising. After all, the whole world is going, to, uh, is going down this particular pathway. Don't be different from the world. Uh, don't stand up. The whole 
crowd is going this direction. And it, it hits us at every particular time, no matter the age, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, the pride of, of life, the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the flesh can hit any person at any time. And it's at that moment that you can say, when the temptation comes, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the three things that I believe the Bible teaches. Uh, here are three ways that we can respond to temptation. First of all, we've already talked about it, but let me reiterate. Do, do be informed. Do be informed. Know how the enemy operates. There will be various temptations that will face you. Do be informed. Know how the enemy operates. Again, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And our inner temptations begin with the battle for the mind. And we do have an adversary that plays upon our weaknesses. Now, back with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says, finally, be strong. Verse 10, Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand, notice, against the devil's schemes. It's interesting because when you define that word schemes, it comes from the word schemata, and we're really talking about blueprints. And so the Apostle Paul is telling us here, and Scripture indicates elsewhere, that we have a cunning adversary who knows our weaknesses and knows our propensities. Satan would not tempt me ever, ever with smoking. I've never, ever smoked in my entire life. I tried chewing tobacco one time when I was eighth grade and I got sick on it. That's not my weakness. He's not going to tempt me with, with uh, tobacco. He's not going to tempt me with alcohol. I've had about a half a dozen beers in my entire life, and it seemed like I had it in a two-week period when I was a young adult. Six beers, maybe seven, eight, maybe ten beers in my entire life. He's not going to tempt me with alcohol. I, I, I just know that because that's not my weakness. That's my propensity. But I've had other struggles, and he knows that. And often when you become a Christian, you have a past, and you have a mind that's been trained under the carnal nature. And this mind that's been trained under the carnal nature he knows all about those weaknesses and those propensities. And so when you're weak, when you're tired, when you're despondent, when you're discouraged, when you're angry, when you've got low blood sugar, watch out. Watch out. And uh, you just have to be aware. You just have to be aware. So what the Bible says here is, I believe, do be informed. Know that we do have various temptations and know that we have an enemy of our soul. And it says right here in this particular passage of Scripture that um, put on the form of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle notice is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, we're dealing with a well-organized army of cohorts and helpers, fallen angels that know how to get to us. But I want you to also know, this is the most important part. If you don't get this, don't get anything else. Please get this. Know 
that we have not been left alone. We have Christ. We have Christ. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit working in our life. And we read in that particular section of Scripture that we are to put on what? The full armor of God. Another verse in the Bible says, Put on Christ. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Greater is He who is in us, Christ, than He who is in this world. We have not been left alone. Did you notice the armor of God? I don't have time. Uh, one of these times we'll spend a whole section of series on each one of these particular pieces of armor. But did you notice he talks about the belt of truth? I want to know the truth. I don't want to believe the father of lies. I don't want to experience any deception from the enemy whatsoever, and I want to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I want to put on the belt of truth. It is not my righteousness that I put on. It is Christ's righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness. It's not my salvation. I put on the helmet of salvation provided for me through Jesus Christ. It is not the... Uh, I put on the sandals of peace. Again, I want to be a peacemaker. I want to know his peace, and I want to be a peacemaker. And also, I lift up the shield of faith to extinguish every flaming arrow that comes my way, every deceptive thought, everything that comes against me. I lift up the shield of faith. Faith is the victory. That's what we're saying, is it not? Faith is a victory. And then also, I want to take up the sword of spirit, which is the word of God. And it's the truth of God. It is the truth of God which I stand on. Old Snaggletooth came against Jesus Christ with those three major tests. And three times Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And so your defense against Snaggletooth is to put on the arm of God to understand that Jesus Christ has provided everything that you need and to stand upon God's word and to tell old Snaggletooth, I bind you in Jesus' name. Get behind me, Satan. This is God's word and this is God's promise to us as Christian believers. Now, so you, number two here, this goes right along with what we're talking about. We need to be vigilant. We need to be vigilant. Satan's schemes may blindside us if we're not careful. And, and you need to ask the Lord to, to, uh, for discernment. You need to discern evil activity around you and be willing to ask for a Christian friend to help you to resist the various temptations. There's a lot of one another passages in Scripture that you cannot fulfill unless you're depending upon a Christian brother or a Christian sister. And you call them up and say, I'm in the middle of a battle. Would you pray for me? Would you help me? Would you keep me accountable? Would you do that for me? And number three, do be dependent upon Christ. Do be dependent upon Christ. James 4, 7 says... Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Here's a final passage of Scripture. This is in a paraphrase. This is found in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. This is your key passage of Scripture, one of the key passages of Scripture. Notice what it says. In the NIV, I'm going to read from Eugene Peterson's The Message. This is what it says. We don't have a high priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing. He's experienced it all. 
all but sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy. Accept the help. I'm almost finished. According to what we read in Ephesians there, the day of evil comes when? Every day. You're in a battle. If you're a Christian person, you're in a battle. The day of evil comes every single day. The day of testing. If you want to pass this test, and if you want to resist the temptation that will come your way, you cannot afford not to have a still time in a safe place on a daily basis. We read that Jesus got alone with God the Father as he was in the habit of doing. You have to start your day with having a still time in a safe place, reading the Bible, saturating yourself in Scripture, and not just praying perfunctory prayers. Not praying perfunctory prayers, but seeking God and asking Him to help you to have the eternal perspective, to realize that you are and I am in a spiritual battle daily. Really, what we're talking about in all these ways, we're talking about building a defense. We're talking about building a wall around our heart and lives. I want to close with this illustration. I worked as a bivocational carpenter for a contractor for over a year in our previous pastorate. And after working for him full-time, our church grew some, and, uh, and so I didn't have to work full-time for him, and I just did odd jobs on the side. But in this whole year of working for this contractor, I worked for a head carpenter. And this head carpenter... Uh, was just a different kind of guy from the 1960s. He was he's just a different guy from the 1960s. I loved him, but in, w- in many ways, he just uh, was a difficult person to get along with. And so, uh, and I told him this to his face, so I'm not talking bad about him. He knows that he's a difficult person to get along with. But the first six months I worked with this head carpenter, all I did was the gopher projects. He'd say, okay, Ron, we want uh, 400 boards cut at four feet all day long. 400 boards, 400, you know, four feet, cut those boards, four feet, you know. And, and then he'd say, okay, I want you to move this stack of plywood from this place to this place. So we got 100 sheets of plywood, so I'm going to move them from this place to pl- this place. Oh, and I want you to carry 50 sheets of four by eight half inch sheetrock upstairs. I was his personal gopher the whole time. So one day, I pulled him aside and I said, Arnie, would you throw me a bone? Would you throw me a bone? Would you let me do something where I can use my steel and my brain? And he thought about that. And we were working a house up in Pine Mountain Lake. Ever heard of Pine Mountain Lake in Groveland, California? Entryway to Yosemite National Park. We were working on this Huge house, thousands and thousands of, uh, I don't know, it was a four or five thousand square foot house, had a bottom and top bottom to it, and uh, everything else. And so it was the middle of August, it was summertime, hot, 
And I said, throw me a bone, Arnie. And he said, okay. He said, I want you to build that retaining wall right there. It's going to be four feet high, and it's going to be about 15 feet in length, and you can do everything from the top to the bottom with it. And I was happy. I wasn't underneath his thumb, being his gopher. So we dug the footing, put rebar down there, and then we formed, I, we, I formed the walls up and uh, formed the side first, about 15 feet in length, 4 feet high, and used stakes and went down to the ground. And then I formed a rebar in the center, uh, squares, a rebar, half-inch rebar that was about 8 inches in diameter, did the thing you're supposed to do there. And then I formed up the other side of that four feet wall, and then I put in these extenders from one side to the other of these two by sixes that held it together, so when the concrete went down in there and reinforced it, everything else, and formed up the ends and did all that. And then we poured the concrete for that and filled it all up and made sure that there was no honeycombs in it. And, you know, you beat it on the sides and you press it down real good to make sure there's no, the, the, the honeycomb thing is, that's a honeycomb out here. Do you guys ever notice that in the driveway of our, the blue house? That's honeycomb effect. And you try not to have that. And so you do the best you can. Sometimes you, you can't, you know, sometimes you can't get away with it. But you, you try, you, anyway. So we took it all off. I'm proud to say, I'm proud to say, that you could run a Mack truck and hit that wall at full speed and it would dent the front end of the mat truck. I know that, because I built it. And here's my point. When you have, when you have uh, the Holy Spirit, when you have God's Word, when you have accountability to other people, when you're involved in prayer on a regular basis, when you saturate yourself with the Word of God, you have this wall of protection around you and there is no way when you do all of that that the enemy can get into you. You see, the enemy is always looking for the weak link in our armor. But when you have this wall of protection around you, he can't get to that weak link. And God has provided all these things for us as Christian people. Would you bow your heads and let us pray together?